Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering four conversations from Season 3, Episode 4, our wrap-up of Nash Tag 2022. This conversation asks a diverse panel of industry stakeholders from Big Pharma, Small Pharma, and Leading Edge Diagnostics to join special guest Professor Ian Rowe and our co-hosts in discussing the last session of Nash Tag 2022. The two fireside chats exploring what we all must do to improve clinical endpoints used to evaluate efficacy, safety, and tolerability of drugs and development. Specifically, this conversation picks up discussing the implications of Stephen Harrison's suggestion to use three H&E slides instead of one, and then moves on to consider other issues that might affect patient and regulator responses. This conversation shares candid opinions from seven stakeholder voices, three of them new to this podcast, about events at the conference that some have called the major inflection point in NASH drug development. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups. Stephen Harrison. I think the reality of the situation, Louise, is the liver is telling us to look at more tissue. And when you look at three H&E slides, you're looking at 60 centimeters of tissue or 60 millimeters of tissue rather than 20. You're looking at three times as much volume. And that's where you begin to pick up the, and smooth out some of the heterogeneity that we see across a biopsy sample. Aaron Quirk. But Stephen, even in light of that, isn't the fact that nine hepatopathologists can't even agree on most bleeding hepatocytes saying maybe we shouldn't be spending as much time looking at the liver tissue in the first place? So Absolutely, we are. But I can tell you, the trials that are enrolling patients today, they don't have the luxury of shifting away in the middle of their trial to an NIT. So you have to deal with what you have to deal with. And right now, something that's simple and easy that could be done tomorrow at every company currently enrolling a trial is looking tissue. But if I can just add one point, because I really wanted to ask this question on the panel and I wasn't able to do so. And Louise, I'd love it if you would be able to respond to this. But, you know, as we talk about reducing screen failure rates and making more patients eligible, I mean, there's also the patients that never get screened in the first place because the requirements of the trial are something that they're just not willing to do. So how generalizable are these data to the overall patient population anyway, if we're not necessarily using relevant entry criteria, you know, irrelevant endpoints. That's sort of a big picture aha moment that I took away from this is that we're doing all of this work and spending all this money and all of this time. And then what do we have in the end? Is it something that the patients can even really look at and say, I really want to take this drug or I really don't want to take this drug? Okay. Let's get a couple of responses to that. And then we are going to go to close because we're running into people's schedules. Louise, Erin specifically asked for your feedback on it. So why don't you go first and then whoever else wants to jump in, jump in. Louise Campbell. I think each person is individual. From my experience, there is always a trigger for somebody to make a change. Now, some of that could be that the medication option is the best way that they see for resolution and to be part of that. Everybody who participates in a clinical trial has an altruistic streak and it's finding out what that is. There's a lot of people who, certainly when I've come across it, whose families didn't want them to take part in some clinical trials, but chose to do so. So it is very much individual. The one thing that I was struck by is something I saw a very long time ago. It was a quality of life study. The people who get the best quality of life post-transplant are the people who go into transplant. The people who had the worst quality of life were the people who had an acute liver failure who woke up with the transplant. And we could never correct their quality of life because of the shock. So preparation is key to whatever we do. We have to be prepared. A sudden shock, we never get the right response. So the more 
more we can find out about our population, the better our outcomes personally will be because the better their engagement. Hopefully that answers something. But <laughs> any, any other follow-up thoughts to that? Ian Rowe. So I've got a couple there. I guess the thrust of the paper that Stephen showed during his talk that, that we did looking at screen fail rates is around that, is about how applicable the results of a very tightly and highly selected population within the wider population. And we did a, a review a few years ago now looking at how comparable trial populations were with natural history cohorts and others. And they're quite different. The confidence that you would have necessarily that the findings would directly translate to those other groups is not necessarily particularly high. The relative reduction in progression to cirrhosis may be, you know, maybe the same, but the actual rates of progression may be very different. So the overall absolute effect of treatment might be quite different. Talking about ballooning and saying it's, it can be difficult to find, though nobody agrees with it, it strikes right at the heart of saying, well, what is NASH? You know, it is defined by ballooning degeneration. And if we're saying that we don't, you know, we don't believe that, can't see it, you know, it means that it's an opportunity either to say we can move away from it, but it strikes right at the heart of what we do and what we've been talking about for the last decade. Maybe the mistake was starting with liver biopsy and talking about change in NASH indicative of injury like we did for hepatitis B and C. But we're so far down the line now, it's very difficult to change course because of the studies that are running and in fairness to the sponsors who've invested up till now. The the other thing that I would say about patients not being prepared to undergo liver biopsy in terms of treatment selection in the future, you know, when we're defining non-invasive tests for use in trials, we must have an eye on the applicability for practice. There's a lot of enthusiasm enthusiasm about MRE, but I am not going to be able to MRE 15% of the adult population in Leeds. That is not going to work. So that we have to think about what the trial selection criteria will be and what the identity how you assess um, treatment response so that we've got something that I can use every day in clinic. Ideally, a blood test or a bedside imaging biomarker. But MRE is not going to do that for me. And I think there are significant risks, a bit like liver biopsy, if we use MRE for widespread treatment adoption at the end of the day. Amy Articolo. Excellent comments. And I, I, that's what I love about these type of uh, meetings, even on a podcast, because what I, you hear is here are some of the challenges and let's explore those solutions. And so what I'm hearing is that we really want to better understand the disease, the course of the disease, progression of the disease. And one way to do that, besides what's already been suggested, is to really expand that patient population and really get that reach, right? And in the U.S., that can be a bit challenging. But I'm thinking, what about primary care? What about obstetrics and gynecology clinics? That's another area that is potentially untapped opportunity for us to explore that patient population and to that will help us better understand patient progression. The other comments that I wholeheartedly agree with is whatever collectively is going to be developed and will hopefully achieve the goal of reflecting the magnitude of biopsy so that we are able to see a change in how we conduct clinical trials is really an opportunity for us to reflect, better reflect clinical practice because at the bottom line, the patients are going to be treated in clinics outside of clinical development and trials and ultimately what are those tools and resources to not only diagnose and use as prognostics but also for treatment management and treatment response, right? And the last thing we want is for patients to be given a diagnosis, given a treatment and they're not responding. How do we monitor that, right, in the most optimal way? So I think there's a lot of opportunity for all of us collectively to and, and some challenges that we still need to look at but it's great discussion and that's the first step and then the how, right, of making that happen. So I'm, I'm going to make a note and then we'll go to close. 
close, the note is I owe you guys. I, I, we owe our audience. And, and Amy, I'm going to lean on you on this one because that comment is right at the heart of it. An episode that goes at ways to enhance trial populations that are economically viable and clinically appropriate. Because one of the things I think we've all said today in different ways is more data faster will make lots of good things happen. We need to spend some time talking about how to do that. And this podcast is, I think, a good place to do that. And who else comes back? But I'm going to invite you to work with me on that if you're interested. Aaron, you too. Um, as to as pharma people. Closing question, really simple. Same question I used yesterday. So Stephen and Louise, you can cheat. Try not to use the same answers. Something you hope to see that's different in a year as a result of this meeting and something you think you will see in a year that's different as a result of this meeting. They can be the same thing if they have to. Brave one, go first. I suppose from this following on, I think it was Aaron that mentioned it, maybe having patients around the forum next year or the next time we have Nashtag for the cozy fireside chats because I think there'll be a permanent fixture, I have a sense, Stephen, as they've gone down so well. Rachel, you've been nodding the whole meeting. You get to go next. Rachel Zayas. One thing that Stephen said during the meeting that really stuck out for me is that non-invasive tests are not used alone. So we would never bulk fibrosis in with NASH. But maybe the problem with developing new non-invasive tests is that we're bulking one or several tools for, for NASH itself. So I would be interested to see studies coming out that look at steatosis, hepatocyte ballooning, lobular inflammation separately as individual tests. So that's something that I'm interested in seeing going forward. I guess I can go. So my hope, I think my belief too, is that a year from now, we'll be having another positive phase three NASH study result to discuss in detail at the meeting, which I think will be a huge advance forward. And that also advances in spaces outside of NASH will have more treatment options available for COVID and more prevention options available for COVID. So that'll make us all more comfortable about actually having even more in-person participation in next year's meeting. So I'll go next. What I hope to see at next year's meeting is that we've actually taken steps to address these challenges and these opportunities. And we do have solid plans or actionables, deliverables, if you will, on these potential solutions, because I think they're important. And I hope that we have the opportunity to explore them more robustly and then really find the step forward to have that data that's available so that we are able to move the needle, if you well for all our patients with NASH. Excellent. Thanks. Ian? Yeah, I guess it goes back to seeing positive phase three data, which I, I expect that we will we will see. But I guess having had a discussion about NITs, that what I really want to see from that is consistent changes in non-invasive tests that correlate with histology and would give us confidence that that might go forward to, to improvements in outcome in the end. I would like nothing more than to report on the first positive results that lead to FDA approval of a drug. I mean, just thinking back six years ago when I sat down and designed the protocol for the first THR beta, there was a lot of naysayers in the audience. And I would like nothing more than to show that that drug is effective in our patients with NASH. I think what I would like to see is something just more 30,000 foot level, and that is building on the consensus. I get the sense now that we're getting away from everybody doing their individual thing, trying to advance the field. And now there's a much more corporate effort 
to drive that, that we are coalescing into a union of people that are driving change. It's a little bit like 1776 again. You know, we're actually, instead of just talking about it at different taverns, and you can imagine the people back in the mid-1700s, they were so disgruntled, you know, with the British government oversight. And then at the end of the day, Ian, I hope I'm not throwing a stone your way, but at the end of the day, I mean, they rallied around and you see what happened. And I feel like it's almost a revolution in the field of Nash. And that movement has begun. And I would just like to see that continue. And when we have this discussion a year from now, we're going to look back and, and, and look at all the positive things that came about because of the corporate drive that we had collectively. You do realize we've gone from Vlad's cult last year to now a revolution. <laughs> Actually, we've gone from Vlad on this podcast a year and a half ago saying, I only worry about the liver and I only worry about it in limited spaces to Vlad's cult, to this revolution and Vlad talking about cirrhosis. A lot of progress. I'm going to hit singles and I'm I'm going to go for small victories rather than large ones. I believe that within the next year, digital histopathology will have become a lot more important in this process and will have moved way up the field. What I'm hoping is that that doesn't mean we will have integrated what Path, merely mean that we will have integrated what Path AI and Histoindex are doing now, but we will appreciate that the greatness of artificial intelligence isn't when you ask it to emulate a human mind that is sloppy and inconsistent, but when you, in fact, ask everything that you can find in a data set that you didn't know existed in the first place. So my hope would be that within a year, we're in a place where we can take full advantage of of the tools that that offers. And I think for reasons we've talked about, we're going to be living with histopathology for a while. But if we can make it digital and if we can make it not just about doing a better job of the things that humans are doing now, but about figuring out everything that's in those profiles, I think we'll be in a much, much, much better place in terms of being able to step forward. Anyone have anything else? I want to add we're a little bit over well i i just will add that to to have this big of a an afternoon chat not a fireside chat but a a post-fireside chat discussion, again, speaks to the interest corporately in trying to drive change. And look, we had seven people on today. I would love to see another round of seven people on because I think we did a great job collectively of working through some of the issues that were discussed and even refining those a bit more, which is very helpful when, you know, uh, when I think about what needs to be done, it's great to bounce ideas off of great minds like yours and then that, that allows me to be a little bit more clear in the direction that I personally would like to see this field going in. The more that we can drive that collectively, the better off we're going to be. You know, I don't want to go off in a direction where I'm spinning my wheels in a particular aspect of this disease, but it's not really the focus that we really need to be going in. And this allows for that focus to really happen. It's an avenue that's enduring. I mean, every week we have this discussion uh, rather than waiting six months for another meeting to get together and discuss it. So that's the beauty, I think, of the podcast. So, Stephen, just to tell everyone else who's on this podcast and everyone who's listening to it, Stephen and I have texted a little bit during this podcast, but not about that. My close was going to be to this shouldn't be the last time we do seven people. But this has been really, this has been really great experience. I mean, we've we've gone a lot wider than we usually do, but we've managed to go wide and reasonably deep at the same time. I think that's a uh, real compliment to Amy and to Rachel and to Ian and to Aaron. As not just because that's the order you are on my screen right now, not because any one of you did better or worse than the others. And we should think about it, Stephen. We're doing this every six or eight weeks, just bringing on four or five other people, picking a big topic, and doing what we just did here. Because I think this is really great, and I think it will be as as we go out to our audience which is also diverse, it will give them a lot more things they can take out of this.
And now, back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week with another stimulating conversation. Don't be surprised if it relates in some way to Martin Luther King Day. Until then, keep your distance mask up so you can stay safe and surf on. And we can see you soon on the Surfing Nash Tsunami Podcast. Bye-bye now. <laughs>